We've come together this Christmas Eve on an evening from across the entire near south area of Chicago to celebrate one thing, and it's a child that was born 2,000 years ago. It's an interesting thing to celebrate. And the, the theme that I wanna pick up on, that if you heard it in that story that was just shared to our children, one of the key words that the angels spoke about when they spoke to the shepherds was this idea of peace. Peace will come to you through this child. Now, at Christmas time, in modern Christian world of the West that we live in, it's very easy to deceive ourselves that we're picking up on this peace that the angels told the shepherds they would have through the person of Christ. And the reason that's easy is because Christmas is full of all kinds of sentimentality, and with all the marketing and hallmark and, and sweets and family and all the, the good things that come into our life around Christmas time because of the way we've marketed it these days, it's easy to think that we are walking in the peace that those angels described because there's just a sense of excitement and happiness in the air. And what I wanna do today is I wanna, I wanna call us a little deeper than that. I don't think Hallmark quite got it right. And I don't wanna settle for sentimentality when glory and majesty beckon us. And that's what Christmas is inviting us into. So I wanna read this text to us, Luke chapter two, the birth of Christ and the visitation of the shepherds. And then I wanna see what we can understand about real and lasting peace as we study their story. Luke chapter two, beginning in verse one, and I'm gonna read us all through verse 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Pause. You'll notice the, uh, the writer Luke was a historian. He began Luke chapter one by saying he was writing to Theophilus after, after doing eyewitness testimonies with those who lived and spoke with Jesus and his disciples. And so when you see details in Luke, like verse two, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor. Those are the details a historian provides. And we're grateful for Luke for things like that to be able to match up the timing well. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house in the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, here it is, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Well, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. I love this verse. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, the way a mother would. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. 
And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The word of the Lord. This story is filled with all types of elements that are out of place with the birth of the king of kings. If you think of the story, it's, it's a pretty strange story. But as we know from the word of God, as we've studied God, we know that there's nothing strange with God. There's no accidents with God. There's only providence. God works all of history and all events, both in the birth narrative of Christ, but then in each of our lives, according to his good and perfect will. And so what looks like is out of place in the story of the birth of Christ is actually perfectly providing for us an understanding of what Christ came to do. What's out of place? Well, Mary having to make a trek to Bethlehem while eight months pregnant, while carrying the child who was prophesied over 700 years prior who would be called Mighty God. They didn't have paved roads like we had back then. That's a a bit of an out of place element. They arrive at Bethlehem and the inn is full. Could God not make sure that there was a room available for the king of kings to be born? The child is finally born and the only place they have to lay him is a a manger, essentially a feeding trough filled with hay. Everything's out of place. What was God up to? But of all the things that are out of place, one of them that strikes me is the, that the very first people who visit the king of kings when he's born, the child whom all history rotates around, the very first people that visit him are shepherds. Now, if we're gonna get this story, we're gonna have to understand a little bit about what it meant to be a shepherd in first century Israel. Some of us might have something like Little Bo Peep in our mind, and that ruins the story of what actually is taking place in the text and what the writer and the historian Luke is communicating to us through this. Many of you might be familiar with the, the little shepherds. Maybe you have a nativity scene, or you've seen, you've seen the story and the images of the shepherds around him, but have you ever thought, what is a shepherd doing at the birth of the Christ? Why are they there? Well, what did it mean to be a shepherd in those days. The shepherds in those days were largely treated as outsiders. They were considered rough men. They weren't really highly looked well upon. Most people would cast them off. Most people would look down at them. And that was generally the tone of what their entire life would have been. There are mixed reviews. When you look at the history and the annals of what people considered to be a shepherd in their lifestyle, shepherds over and over again in rabbinic literature were looked down upon. Interesting, the very first people whom a multitude of angels appear to and declare that the Christ has been born is shepherds. Why? What else do we know about shepherds? Well, shepherds were very violent and tough men. They slept outside, they guarded their sheep, there weren't police and national guard in those days, and so shepherds, actually Jesus picks up on the imagery of a shepherd when he describes himself as the chief shepherd, and he talks about himself being the gate to the sheepfold, because shepherds back then would lay in front of the entrance to the sheepfold to protect against bears, lions, and thieves. Shepherds were very violent. They knew how to defend their property. They were physical men, they were tough men, they were not men to be messed with. Secondly, they were were often considered by the religious elite unfit to be in community. Why was that? Well, in Israel times, during the Old Covenant, this is not the same covenant we're underneath, but if you look at the Old Testament, there were certain rules of what made you clean or unclean. 
And to be clean meant you could participate in gathered worship, something like what we're doing right now, participate in the festivals of Israel back then and be a part of the religious community life, which was central to an Israeli Hebrew person in the first century of Israel. That was just what life was. But if you were unclean for any reason, you couldn't participate. Well, what are some of the things that made you unclean? It was all the stuff that shepherds had to do on a day-to-day basis. So, for example, one of the common activities of a shepherd was to help their sheep give birth. After you were part of that process, you were considered unclean for a certain amount of weeks. It didn't mean you were sinful. It just meant there were processes for being made clean that you had to go through to then participate again in the religious functions of the church. Shepherds oftentimes went out in the field. This is a bit strange. But the way they would make fire at night, trees are not common to come by in Israel. That's an interesting fact of the geography of Israel. You don't come by that many trees that you can chop down to make a fire at night. And so what they would use is the dried dung of animals. Another activity that if you were to touch that would make you unclean, unable to participate in religious worship. So not only were these considered rough and tough men, they they didn't get to come to this kind of stuff. They were outsiders. Thirdly, they were uneducated and they knew it. See, shepherds in those days, when you were a shepherd, it was because your dad was a shepherd and his dad was a shepherd and his dad was a shepherd. They were shepherds from the time they were as small as these children that were just in front of us. That was their life. There wasn't kind of upward mobility in first century Israel the way we think of in America today. So to be a shepherd was to have not gone to rabbinic school to get educated in the history of the world and in the things of God, which meant that many of the religious elite often looked down at them as ignorant. That's how the shepherds are described. To put it simply, all their life, they had been told they were unclean, uneducated, and unwelcome. And of all the people that God the Father chose to declare the birth of his son to, it was to a group of lowly shepherds lying, guarding their sheep at night in a field. And I want to ask the question, why? What was God up to? I love the language here. We were told that as soon as the, the angels appear to them, it says they were filled with great fear. Now, there's two ways to look at that, verse nine. And on one hand, if a, a large, mighty warrior angel were to suddenly appear to you, I suspect you would also be filled with great fear as well. But secondly, if you think of the personality and the persona of these men, my guess is the moment those angels appeared to them, they thought, this isn't good. If they're appearing to us, the message is not one that we really want to hear. Why? Because we're uneducated, unclean, ignorant men. But the very first thing the angels say to them is, fear not. They they, they come and they wrap them in the same type of language as when the angel appeared to Mary. First thing the angel said, fear not. It's the same type of language. It's picked up again, but this time to lowly shepherds. And then they say in verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those, here it is, with whom he is well pleased. Now how did that language, do you think, fall on those shepherds' ears? With whom God is pleased. You know, that's language that we probably throw around a lot in the church today, and I'm, I'm guessing even if you go outside of the church to many religions, to many different modern faith systems and spirituality, the idea that God would be pleased with you is probably something that is somewhat normative, even though most people don't understand what the Bible really says about that type of language. But back in those days, that wasn't the case. These men had been told their whole life 
that they were uneducated, ignorant, and unclean and couldn't participate. And here, a heavenly group of angels appearing to them saying, and God is well pleased with you. What do you think that did to their soul? I'll tell you what it did to them. The first thing they wanted to do is they wanted to run and see if this could possibly be true. Could it be that there really is a child as the angels proclaimed? They go and they find the child laying in a manger. Their whole life has suddenly changed. It says in verse 17, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Mary treasured all these things in her heart, pondering them, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. I want to talk about the peace of Christ that these shepherds experienced. The peace of Christ that was promised by the angels. When we talk about the peace that God gives to those whom he is well pleased, what, what peace are we talking about? Let me see if I can break it down in three different ways. First is an inward peace. An inward peace. These shepherds have been treated as ignorant outsiders their entire life. And I wonder what kind of inner turmoil that caused just in their day-to-day -day life. I want you to think about your own life for a moment. You know, it's Christmas, and, and right now you're here, and, and I, I'm hoping that you have some joy-filled expectations for the next few days. But if, if you can, just rewind the clocks a little bit. Get yourself maybe into early November when you're in the thick of things. Do you live regularly with an inner peace about you? A joy-filled, courageous contentment that things are right. You see, I wonder what these shepherds worried about. I wonder if they worried about what others thought about them. I wonder if they believe the gossip about them. That's the thing about gossip. You, you hear it enough times about you, you start to get pretty self-conscious about it. I know I, I can do that. I wonder if they ever really started to believe that they were truly religious outsiders, that they couldn't participate. If, if, if the, the lies about them began to seep in over the years and then over the decades, and I wonder what kind of inner turmoil of soul, they kind of just lived with below the surface. Things aren't quite quite right. I can't maybe put my finger on it, but, but there's a discontentedness. There's a, there's a hunger for more. There's a peace that's, that's beyond me, and I, I don't know how to get it. See, Christ offers a peace inwardly first. Now, how does he do that? Every religion in the world, including the religion of secularism today, which many folks in our city of Chicago would follow, and it is a religion, Every religion in the world tells you how to get by and how to have a good life and how to have a meaningful life, and it all amounts to the same thing. Prove yourself. You have peace, you have contentment. Be somebody worthy of peace and contentment. Accomplish something. Earn something. Do the right thing over and over enough times. Do it the right way and you'll get it. And the reason that so many folks, even Christians, Christians get this wrong all the time, the reason Christians live with a discontented soul, a trembling conscience, is what the, the, the old guys used to call it, beneath the surface so often is because they don't get the gospel and we're living like everyone else trying to prove ourselves that we're good enough, that we're kind enough, that we're beautiful enough, that we're handsome enough, the problem is, is that when you look inside, you suddenly realize, I'm not those things, I'll never be those things, and I keep finding myself short of the standard I want to live to. Now, why does Christ offer a peace? Because, because the rat race of trying to prove yourself in Christ ends the moment you believe in Jesus. Because God says there's no way you could ever prove yourself to God. You can't earn favor with God. This is the one religion in the world that says you can't earn favor with God because we've all fallen short of the standard. But Christ has earned 
our favor on our behalf. He lived a life we could never live. Now, this is what that means. When you place your faith in Jesus and you follow him, there's no more earning. You couldn't earn anything because God isn't judging you by your life, but he's judging you by the life of Christ, and he's fully pleased with Christ, and now he's fully pleased with you, that makes you an overwhelmingly dangerous person, Christian, because you don't have to prove anything. That gives you a peace that the New Testament writers called it a peace that surpasses all understanding. Philippians chapter four, verse seven. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When you know that God the Father is perfectly pleased with you, even when you fall short, and he doesn't take it away one bit, you have nothing to lose. What can gossip do when the Father approves? Those who you know who live that way are pretty dangerous people, dangerous in all the right ways. He gives you an inward peace. Secondly, he gives you a relational peace. So much of our life is spent in inward hostility with others. Again, you know, I, I, I wanna pick on Christians, and for majority of you in the room, that you're, you're Christians, you're here because you're part of our church. And, and sometimes we fall into patterns of not having a relational peace with even those we love where there's just brokenness. And you look at where this discontent among relationships comes from, and you realize when you really boil it down, what it comes to is that oftentimes Christians forget the centrality of what the gospel is all about. They miss it. And, and the cause actually is internal. We cause the relational peace, because we're not living into the truth. Why, does, why, are, why is peace with others healed in an upward trajectory when you, believe, when you believe in Christ? Because in order to come to Christ, you must confess and believe in your heart that you are the chief of sinners. Now that does something to a person. When you begin to believe and truly own before a holy God that you've fallen short, and it's not their problem, but it's yours. You've got the broken heart, you've got the broken mind, you've got the broken sentiments about how to order things, and you got it wrong, but you see yourself as the chief of sinners. What does that mean about how you treat others? You begin to love on people the way that Jesus loved on people. Because you see them not according to the way you used to, but you realize the problem is here first and foremost before it's anywhere else. This makes a very dangerous Christian. Number three, Christ offers us an eternal peace. He offers us an inward peace. He offers us a relational peace where relationships begin to get healed. But I think most importantly, what the angels are talking to the shepherds here is an eternal peace. Now, where, what does that mean? An eternal peace, this infant Christ if he really is what the prophets foreshadowed, what they told 700 years before Christ was born, the prophet Isaiah had that line where he said that this infant that would be born would be mighty God. And then Christ was born. And, and the scriptures, Psalm 89, 14 says, justice and righteousness are the foundation of his throne. See, this child would grow to be a man, and the reason that God sent his son, Christ, the second person in the Trinity, born into the flesh, the reason he came was he came on a mission, not to just create a nice story for us to celebrate on Christmas, but Christmas points us to Good Friday and to Easter, where one man went underneath the wrath of God on our behalf, because all have fallen short of the standard of God's righteousness. Every single one of us, we've broken God's law in a thousand ways, and when we're honest with God, we live with a conscience that bears witness to the reality that we have fallen short. But in Christ, 
this child would grow and he'd take our place on the cross. The wrath of God in that moment being poured down, not on those who deserved it. That's you and I. That's me, chief of sinners. But on Christ in our behalf. Christ shedding his blood on the cross in order that the free gift of grace would be given to those who do not earn it, who do not deserve it. That's you, Christian. And that's the, the sense of your life once you believe in Jesus, is that you have, you've received grace upon grace despite you not, not earning it. For some crazy reason, this infant that God sent loved you enough to go to the cross for you, and he establishes an eternal peace because it can never be taken away from you. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hands because he is greater than all. God offers you heaven for all eternity, and he secures it by the blood of his Son. I wanna ask you again, as we go into Christmas and to celebrate, Lord willing, with family and to celebrate all the ways that we do during Christmas, do you have a peace about you? Do you have an inward peace? Is there something underneath the surface of your life that you just recognize it's not right? Something's out of place? When you look at your relationships, do you say, there's a, there's a peace with my relationships? Maybe not perfect. We can't control how anybody responds to us, but, but you can say on the whole, there's a peace. Because of who Christ is, there's a firmness in my relationships with other people. And do you know that sweet and lasting peace of an eternal reward with Christ that's promised to you? If you don't know that peace in those three different ways, Christ this morning invites you to look to the, the infant in the manger the child who was sent to give you peace, a peace that lasts. I wanna invite you to stand up and we're gonna recite these words from Luke chapter two, verse 14, the words the angels shared. These should come up on the screen behind me, Luke two fourteen. repeat them with me. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let me invite the band to come up, let me pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for the sweetness of Christmas. God, we look to the incarnation this morning, or this evening, and we are, uh, I'm reminded of Spurgeon's words when he said that in the creation, God made a thousand, thousand different worlds in all their glory, and yet in the incarnation, we behold majesty greater than all of it, because God took on flesh. God, I pray right now that you would grant every person in this room an overwhelming sense of majesty, an overwhelming sense of the greatness of the incarnation. Fill us with understanding, I pray. And for those who do not have peace, I pray that you would allow them to find it this evening in Christ's name.